Would you take your Bibles, please, or look up on the wall where a Bible is, and uh, let's read together 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10. Now, before we read, I want to make a few comments about this text. Um, you know that the Bible is God's Word written, and that in it we find a record of what God's Holy Spirit has inspired flesh men, faulty men, sinful men to write. And one of those men that wrote a lot of the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. He was a leader in the church. He had an office. He had authority. And if you read a number of the letters of the New Testament, uh, Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, you'll find that there's a constant account of conflict being at the center of the church. Today, we, uh, in seminaries around the country, the curriculum, you have the curriculum of Greek and Hebrew and church history and everything, but the real curriculum of seminaries today is, if you ever allow there to be conflict in your church, you are a failure. That's the real message of seminaries today. So you open up the Bible and you read these letters and you think, what's wrong with them? Man, those Galatians were gnarly. You know, those Ephesians... And and the Philippians and the Corinthians, I mean, they were really gnarly. Because as you read the books, you find that there's this constant conflict. And you think, why did they have conflict? What was wrong with them? Well, in order to understand our text this morning, we need to know a little bit about the conflict that Paul was in. Because the whole thrust of the text, the passage we're going to read, is Paul fighting in the conflict. He fights in a rather weird way. It's not a sword that's sticking people. Uh, it's words. But you have to understand why he's doing it. What is happening is that in the, in the Corinthian church, there, is a, uh, a, a, there are a number of false shepherds, false pastors, false apostles who don't love Christ but rather themselves and are looking at the church as a place where they can have a perky career. And in order for them to have a perky career, they have to be able to lead the people to stop living for Christ and to begin to live for them. They've got to get paid well. They have to have status. They have to be deferred to. They, they need all this rigmarole stuff if they're going to be big men, right? Well, the problem is that over here you have a little man. And this little man is named Paul, and he really does love the church, and he is determined to protect the church from these big men, these, these super apostles over here. Because he knows that they are leading the people, the sheep, the flock, down the path to destruction, that they're on the broad path where many are that leads to destruction, and he has to try to get the sheep to get onto the narrow path that leads to heaven. He knows that in the church there's not room for a glorious man and a glorious Savior or glorious men and Jesus Christ. That It's either Christ or us. It can't be both. And so the Apostle Paul's fighting them. He's fighting them over doctrine, what they believe. He's fighting them over their practice, whether they give themselves to holiness and purity or just say, well, you know, God made me a homosexual and that's okay. All right. And as he fights, what do they do? Well, they say, this jerk, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Look at him. (laughs) You know, he's a midget. And you know, have you listened to him speak? His speaking isn't very impressive. You know, he doesn't have a lot of presence, you know, gravitas. You know, he's kind of a a, a runt, you know. He's he's, He's the dog that couldn't get to the teeth. 
you know. And, and have you noticed he doesn't see well, you know. I mean, would God really choose a vessel like that? And as they demean Paul, as they diss him, what's going on is God and his son, Jesus Christ, is being dissed. It's not Paul, it's God. That's what's at stake with Paul. The sheep are in the middle, and this group wants to lead them over the precipice into the chasm, down to their death, and Paul wants to lead them to heaven. And so what we're going to read here is holiness, truth are at stake. You've got false shepherds, super apostles. You've got this little runt. And this little runt is about to boast in order to protect his reputation. One of the problems of being a pastor today is that you have to boast in order to defend the people. Do you understand that? There's absolutely no way I can get you to submit to the proclamation of the true word of God without exposing those who are proclaiming the false word of God and saying, look at me, I'm faithful. And you go, man, that guy has a real ego problem. You know? Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, and you know, why is it always about you? Well, that's what we have to ask as we read Paul this morning. Paul, why is it always about you? You know, if you were really godly, you wouldn't be the center of people's attention. You certainly wouldn't be calling people's attention to yourself. I mean, if you had stature, it would be evident. Isn't it always the little men that have to call attention? they got this Napoleonic complex. Look at me! Paul, if you were really something and if God was really anointing you with the Holy Spirit, you would not need to call attention to yourself and you certainly wouldn't need to brag. And you don't need to lower yourself and attack other people and speak negatively about them. Paul, you're so gauche. You're, you're so embarrassing. You're such a little man. Grow up, Paul. You know, don't call attention to yourself. Don't fight for yourself and your own reputation. And in the middle of this, we have this text. Let's read it together. Paul says what? He says, boasting is necessary. Well, I guess we know where we're headed, right? (laughs) Boasting is necessary. Though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast... But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
and then the mop-up operation. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is God's word, and it is eternally true. People like to be religious, in America particularly. It's said that if, uh, if the most religious country in the world is America, um, and the least religious country in the world is Sweden, that America is a nation, uh, or no, the most religious is India, and the least is Sweden, that America is a nation of Indians governed by Swedes. The United States is a very religious country, isn't it? Very religious. Ancient Athens was a very religious country, wasn't it? People like to be religious. But the religion of Jesus Christ is a religion that has at its center brokenness and weakness. And no one can worship him who is unwilling to embrace their own failures and sinfulness. And so what happens is a great competition develops among religious people. And the competition surrounds the issue of whether or not brokenness and sin will be at the center of their religion or whether grand and glorious and good-looking and, and wealthy and, and all this other stuff will be at the center of the religion. And this was the same thing in Corinth. There were the super apostles who had no need to make their reputation clear. They weren't small. They didn't have bad eyesight. They, they, they were absolutely buff. And then there was Paul, and if there's one thing you know about Paul, it's that he wasn't buff. The Apostle Paul, even when he wrote, it was somewhat powerful, but it wasn't the kind of thing that demanded that you sit down and take note, unless your heart was tender before the Holy Spirit. And so still today we have the same conflict. And the conflict is whether weakness and brokenness and sinfulness and repentance and confession and supplication and need and forgiveness will be at the center of a church or at the center of the church will be the wealthy and the powerful and the influential and people that are good-looking and people that have no need. In other words... <laughs> The competition is whether some dude that last night when I listened to the radio station uh, for like the fourth or fifth time in a row, like blew out his arm before the fifth inning at the, at, at the Indianapolis Indians game, and his arm run average is awful, and he's hopeless, and he may get booted down, right, even from the minors, or whether it's A-Rod or whether it's Peyton Manning, who will have the center of the attention of the church? It's always the habit of Christians to think that although Jesus had to die and to be humiliated and to be mocked on the cross and to have no place to lay his head, it would be best for the growth of his cult, his religion, his church, if we could bring people in who are rich, who are wealthy, who are the best sports players, who are the presidents of their class, who are on the cheerleading squads, and in America, who are white. 
Because then the natural sinful tendency of people was to want to associate with success. And so if we're successful, you know, if, if we're not an embarrassment to people, it'll make it easier for them to what? To repent. Right? Oh, no, no, not to repent, to believe, to have faith in Jesus Christ. Because, of course, repentance is a little embarrassing, too. You might have to do it, but do it in a back room with an elder. Don't blubber here. Right? And so here's the Apostle Paul. He has nothing to commend him. His chief notorious characteristic is that he spent years persecuting the people of God. And that tells you right away what kind of dude you're dealing with. I mean, he went around persecuting the people that followed Jesus, and now he thinks he's a leader in the church, the Christian church. What's with this dude? You know, I never made that mistake. You know, I'm not, I didn't have sex with my wife before I got married. I wasn't pregnant. And I never did drugs, you know. And my sons, well, just look at them. You know, can you imagine Paul thinking he's qualified to be a leader? What a joke. I mean, he's a runt, and he's not powerful, and he's not even married, and he doesn't have children, he doesn't homeschool, and he doesn't use Veritas. And furthermore, I mean, who would take him seriously, this, this Apostle Paul? Look at his background and his history. He got it wrong. I mean, so awfully wrong, it took Jesus zapping him on the road to Damascus to stop him. That's how hell-bent he was on opposing the living God. Not me. Hmm. I don't have anything like that in my past. I was born of Joe Bailey and, and my father-in-law's Ken Taylor. I went to Gordon-Conwell. I'm a member of the PCA. And I'm six foot two. I'm not ugly. And I have a good brain. And I'm also a rather pleasantly fat for this point of of my life and my children are all above average now I'm an apostle I'm the kind of man you want to follow right right yeah right I used to be a member of the National Brotherhood of Railway and Traffic Car employees a union man brother I don't wear Birkenstocks Sunday mornings. <laughs> and you know something? This is the superficial level on which we choose our shepherds and our apostles and our preachers and our pastors. This is the superficial level that determines how we spend our waking moments in our lives. I read on the Internet in the last 24 hours that the new away kit for Arsenal is now available for sale. What's Arsenal? It's a soccer team. I go into Indianapolis before or after a Colts game, and every single person in Indianapolis even the grunts, steam fitters in the tunnels below the street have on number 18 jerseys. 
Every single one of them. And you say, well, you know, I I don't worship at the altar of sports. Okay, it's different for you. But what do you boast in? Well, you boast in how many children you have, what kind of a mother you are. And every single relationship with another woman is a negotiation of where you and she are in the pecking order of godly women in the church. Do you homeschool? Do you Christian school? Do you public school? What is the curriculum you use? And what did your children score on the SATs? Okay. Well, you say, I don't have any children. I'm just a nothing. And this church doesn't care for me because I'm single. I don't have children. And you only matter in this church if you're married and if you have children. And, you know, I've had it with that. I mean, don't I matter too? Who am I? Why do you people not see me? Am I invisible to you? I am not married. I don't have children. Don't you see me? I'm tired of this. And what's going on there? It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's somebody taking the circumstances of their life and using it to demand the attention and to demand power among the people of God. (laughs) It's exactly the same thing. It's America, the victim status. I'm a victim attention to me. I'm a victim. Feel sorry for me. Look at my tears. I'm crying. Look at, look at me. You've hurt me. Right, 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 right. And what's that? It's exactly the same thing as the woman with ten children who tells you what her, what her curriculum is and how, the SAT scores. It's exactly the same thing. It's us having power. It's us having status. It's us taking authority over other people and demanding that they serve our needs. Do you understand that? It's just America's come up with a real twisted way of doing it where the person that's really rich is the person that has nothing who then can demand that everybody give them what they don't have. And it's the same old game. It's exactly the same. And all of it is an effort for us to refuse and to avoid and to do everything we can to avoid being dependent on Jesus Christ. We demand attention. We demand status. We negotiate our social relationships. We build our bank accounts. We wear Peyton Manning jerseys. We're a member of the union. We know A-Rod's stats. We do everything we can to make sure that we won't fall behind in being strong. And it's so sick in America today that just by virtue of looking at a picture of a pregnant actress, you can brush against the fame and feel like you are part of the beautiful people. I mean, what's the Beckhams all about? Remember, you know, bend it like Beckham, he's come to L.A. And let me tell you, L.A. deserves him. And his wife. And now you can look at pictures of them, of parts of their body you really don't want to see, and feel somehow that you have a little bit of their status, a little bit of their sex appeal. You can go out the line at the supermarket and just glance at the front of the magazine and realize that your life has meaning. I mean, that's what it is. You know, it's like, oh, man. 
My, my son-in-law is driving back to Nashville this week, right? All of a sudden, my phone rings. I know he's left the home, but only 15 minutes ago, he says, hey, guess what? I said, what? He says, I'm driving down to Lake Monroe. I'm behind this really, really expensive car, and it turns into um, Mellencamp. It turns into John Mellencamp's driveway. And so I slowed down and opened my window. It was John Mel- Mel- Mellencamp. And, you know, he thought that he was a little bit more than he had been five minutes ago. Now, that's pathetic. But what's really pathetic is that when I listened to him, I realized that I was the father-in-law of the man, and I heard it first. And the Apostle Paul says what? He says, I glory, I'm proud, I boast in my weakness. And brothers and sisters, we will do everything we can to escape weakness. We'll do everything we can to escape weakness. If someone's crying... We'll walk the other way. If somebody is in a wheelchair, we'll act like we don't see them. If somebody is a different ethnic group, we'll say, no hablo espanol. Right? We'll do everything we can to avoid the cross of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and therefore the glory of Jesus Christ. (laughs) So where are you going to stand? That's what it's about. You can be here with the super apostles, and boy, do they sell the books. And they're right at the front of Barnes and & Noble and Border, all those books. Christianity, religion, is very successful. And you know, those pastors know what they're talking about because the whole world listens. And the whole world listens because those pastors know what they're talking about. And you don't have to die if you're around them because if you read what they say when they're interviewed... They'll tell you that every day in every way the world is getting better and better. And if you just follow this technique, you'll get better and better too. And I'm telling you that if you follow the proper technique, that you will more and more say, I am the chief of sinners. There's no hope for me except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah, a little baby said amen. Did you hear that? That was an amen. And over here, it's the siren song of the world, and it's big, you know. It goes on and on, you know. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a name and wealth and healing from all your diseases. And then you will be as important and successful as I am. Well, actually, not quite as important as I am after all. (laughs) You know, I am the pastor. But close, you can brush against me. I'll have you over for dinner. And you can say, I'm at the Super Apostles Church. And, you know, look at Paul's church. You know, it's pathetic. He's a runt. And his people are runts. And they're not going anywhere. I mean, anybody can see this, right? Right? And that's religion in America today. That's religion in America today. And every day you are presented with an opportunity to take up your cross and to follow Jesus Christ. 
And you know something? If you take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ and you're a woman, the chances are good, not certain, but good, that you will have the stuff that comes out of the rear end of a baby and out of its mouth at inopportune moments on you much of your life. Because godly women generally, not always, godly women generally have children and generally don't stop at one. As a matter of fact, I read this last week, an article from the Harvard Business Review. And the Harvard Business Review says corporate America better get with the fact that the liberals are not having babies and that the conservative, and they use the word patriarchs are, and they're pro-natal, which means that they have a lot of vomit all over them for about 30 years, 20 years, 10 years of their lives, depending on how many children they have. And these patriarchal pro-natal families who are having all these children are taking over America and so you better stop using sexual immorality to sell things to them because that doesn't turn them on. <laughs> I kid you not. The article that David Talcott gave me from the Harvard Business Review. They're warning corporations to stop using decadence and sin to sell to us because we're taking over the world because what? Godliness leads to marriage, leads to children. You say, oh, there you go again. I'm single. And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul was single too. It didn't make him a wimp. Come on. Godliness causes people to live by faith and it requires an awful lot of faith to have children and a wife especially when Seinfeld has taken over the world. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was saying to somebody this last week that I re heard a quote this last year. It says, the greatest adventurer is the father. <laughs> you know? Master and commander, eat your heart out. It's an awful lot harder to stay home with a wife and children than it is to go out on a ship. And Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness. The real adventurer boasts in the vomit on his shoulder as he holds his baby. It's weak, and it's godly. Martin Luther said that when a father changes a dirty diaper, that God smiles down on him from heaven. You say, here he goes again. He's always on this theme of having children. Okay, fine, I'll forget the theme of having children. What weakness do you want to talk about? Let's forget children and their weakness. You know, the disciples thought kids shouldn't come to Jesus, and they came and they shooed them away, and Jesus got mad and said, let the little children come to me. What weakness do you want to talk about? It can't just be a hypothetical one. It has to be a real one. Let's talk about the weakness of old age. You know what it means to be a Christian? It means that when you build your house, you build it with a level where your parents can live until they die and you can nurse them without having to take them up and down stairs. Do you realize that that's what it means to be a Christian? You embrace weakness. You don't shack it up somewhere where you pay professionals to handle it or send them down to Arizona or Florida where they can die and not embarrass you. You say, now wait a second, preacher. You know, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, okay, Jesus said that we were to honor our fathers and our mothers. And he said that when people said that they'd given their money to the church and so they didn't have anything to help their parents in their old age, they were violating that command. The one time Jesus spoke of that command, he focused on older parents and their children providing for their parents in their old age. 
Think about that. So what do we do? Well, as Christians, what we do, because we refuse to glory in our weakness, what we do is we come out with this phrase, and it sounds so pious. You know, I I don't want to be a burden on my children. Uh Oh, so selfless, so magnanimous, so altruistic, so, so kind that my mother wouldn't be a burden on me. Isn't that what you really want out of your mother is that when she gets old and she needs to be diapered that she won't stick around? You know, remember Governor Lamb saying, kick off old people. They're young people that want to take your place. You know, and so all are, all are, you're too young to remember it. This is the governor of Colorado. Some of you will corroborate what, I, what I'm saying. You remember it. There's, there's Scott. He would remember it. You remember it. If Stephen Bradley and Scott, if those two men corroborate something I said, it done been corroborated. <laughs> okay, so if it's not Governor Lamb, what is it? Well, you know, they have places where you can move down in Arizona that have street names like Inspiration Avenue. And like Trinity Boulevard, you know, and you can have be surrounded by other Christians and you can all die together with other people that are equally humiliated and remove it from young people because it's kind of a negative karma thing with young people. You know, you shouldn't take him to funerals, you know. Why would somebody young go to a funeral? I mean, really, I mean, you're in the first blush of life, you know, why should you, you know. So you don't want me to talk about children. How about if I talk about old people who can't walk, can't stand, can't control themselves, have had a stroke, can't communicate. Is this, is this someone Jesus died for? Is this someone you can love? Is this someone you can identify with? Because as you go through life trying to be holy, you feel like you can't control yourself. Is it wrong to have living in front of you a living manifestation of your spiritual complete helplessness? In other words, are you a Christian or aren't you? What are your what are your commitments? What what do you value? Thierry Henry, Arod, Peyton Manning. Julia Roberts. How about Rosie? See, I put that in my sermon, but I thought we'd all just feel superior to her. But there actually are people in this church that really do honor her. Because there are many people that go through life just being belligerent. And that's their protection. That's the way to keep from ever being weak. Boasting is necessary, though it isn't profitable, but I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul talks about how he knew a man, and when he says that, you know very well what he's talking about. He's talking about himself. I knew a man. I know a man. All right? And he goes on and says that that man was carried up to paradise, third heaven, paradise, But he doesn't give you the satisfaction of saying, I, he says, a man, a man in Christ. In other words, a believer who has been united with Christ by faith. I know a man in Christ 
He's bragging, but boy, he doesn't quite give us the goods, does he? Paul so rarely brags about anything except how many lashes he got, how many times he was stoned, how he was shipwrecked, in other words, how he was weak. All right? And when he finally does tell you that something great and glorious happened to him, he even then uses a circular way of talking about it such that you can't just say, that happened to you, Paul? <laughs> you know? He says, I know a man in Christ who... And then he tells you what happened. What happened was he was taken up to heaven. He doesn't know if it was in his body or outside of his body, but he knows it happened. And in heaven saw things that were inexpressible and which he has been, he has been commanded not to tell. So in other words, even if he decided not to keep the secret, there are no words to describe it. That's how beautiful it was. And you say, well, what kind of bragging is that? I mean, he doesn't know if he's in the body or out of the body. It's not like he had a lot of moral agency and will in the process. He's like somebody yanks him from behind, grabs his shirt collar, yanks him up to heaven, says, look around, yanks him down, that says, now shut up. Don't tell anybody about it. So how can he brag? Well, we all do it. When I was at seminary, I worked for... Very wealthy people, and I, I have told many, many people that my boss was in so-and-so's wedding. I won't do it to you, but you could think about who so-and-so was. She might have been married to Camelot. All right. And her husband owned such and such an institution in Boston, and she ran such and such a charity in Boston. And Enoch and I, oh, we were, he's the other guy that worked there. We were so proud of the rich and famous people that had hired us. In fact, I used to brag about the fact that when I was hired, I couldn't interview directly. I had to go through an intermediary who then passed me off to them after I had passed the first level of things, you know. And you think about the fact that you go to a Colts game and you can say, well, I was right next to the tunnel and I, you know, I tapped my fingers against Peyton Manning's, but he left, went through the tunnel for halftime, you know, and my son plays baseball, and someday he's going to be at Yankee Stadium, right, right, right? Someday he's going to be at Wrigley Field, right, for you losers? <laughs> and so, yeah, my son-in-law loves, I don't think love quite sums it up. I would say he adores the Cubbies, which is pretty depressing. But he loves weakness. That's right, yes. He glories in his weakness. <laughs> yep, that's right. And so what happens is the Apostle Paul, even when he brags, uses a circular way of speaking so that it's not me, Paul. It's I know a man in Christ, too. And then he says he was pulled up to heaven and he saw things that were words can't describe them, and he's forbidden to speak about them. And that's his bragging. <laughs> you go, how's that bragging? Well, what he's saying is God chose me to give that vision to. You understand, that is worth bragging about. And yet you don't feel fulfilled when he gets done bragging, do you? You don't feel like, I know Paul. You just think, well, Paul, that's special. But did you know A-Rod? You know, did you know him? Did you ever go to Yankee Stadium? Then he says, 
On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, verse 5, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. He's in controversy. The souls of the people of the church are at stake. On one side are those who tell the people that they don't have to repent, they don't have to be weak, and if they have enough faith, they'll get rid of every disease, they'll have wealth, and they'll have a preacher who's good-looking and has a large church. And on the other hand, they have this runt Paul, and Paul has to say, okay, guys, look at me just for a second. I have to boast. Here's my boast. I was caught up to heaven. And I saw things that words can't express, but I was forbidden to tell you. I actually, no, not me, but I know a man who. All right. And you're left going, <laughs> you know, Paul, you didn't quite pull it off. You know, they're still looking pretty attractive and you're still looking a bit like a runt. Paul, give us something that we can hope in and believe in, something that is as dignified as we are. All right. And so then he says, and you know what? That happening to me was so dangerous. I was so much in danger of getting a big head and bragging about it that God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Three times I prayed that the thorn in the flesh would be revealed. And the response that God gave me was, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, he barely gets going talking about this man who's in Christ and immediately he's back to a thorn in the flesh. And what thorn in the flesh is it? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. It may have been a particular temptation to sin. It may have been the Judaizers and the false apostles tormenting him. It may have been that he was tormented in his own conscience about how he treated Christians and persecuted them. It may have been that he had some physical malady, like a migraine chronic, like gallstones, like... Uh, bad eyesight. We don't know. And guess what? The Holy Spirit chose to not tell us. So it's a thorn in the flesh. And he says, in order to discipline my pride after I had this experience, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Three times I prayed that it would be removed. Three times it wasn't. Jesus told me my grace is sufficient for you. Okay, now think about this. If Trinity Broadcasting Network were dealing with this, how would they deal with it? Benny Hinn, how would he deal with it? What he would say is that Paul did not have the faith to be healed. Do you understand that? That if you have the faith that you can move a mountain, faith is small as a mustard seed. So... What are we left with? Are we left with Paul not having sufficient faith to have the thorn in the flesh removed? Each time he prayed, he obviously didn't have the faith that Benny Hinn has. He didn't have the faith that Oral Roberts had, now his son has. He doesn't have the faith that Rick Warren has. Because if you have faith, you have large numbers of people who are good-looking, who give you a high salary so that you can live in a nice neighborhood, and all of America has to sit up and take notice. And it's obvious the Apostle Paul, even in this, was not a real man of God and did not really have faith. Because three times he prayed and it wasn't removed, and that pathetic, that pathetic 
excuse for his faithlessness that he says God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. I mean, you know, we all like to cover up our failures, don't we? Looks to me like Paul's covering up his failure. Doesn't it look like that to you? My grace is sufficient. There he goes again, that Paul. You know, even in this, he's not victorious. Look at me. I'm sleek. Pride is my necklace. My eyes are fat. The whole world goes after me and drinks from my cup. You know what's interesting? There's another man who prayed three times for the cup to be taken from him. And that man was perfect. And his faith was perfect. That was Jesus Christ. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he approached his betrayal by Judas and his crucifixion and the agony, physical and emotional, of being forsaken by his Father, as he was mocked and ridiculed, He prayed and asked that his father would take that cup from him. And we know there was no failure of love on his father's part for him because he was the perfect, obedient son. And we know there was no crisis of faith in him because he is God. And his faith had moved mountains. It had raised the dead. It had stopped the storms. It had given blind men from birth their sight back. And when he prayed three times, what was God's answer to him? No. My grace is sufficient. And so we've got Jesus and we've got the Apostle Paul, and but we still turn on Trinity Broadcasting Network and think that if we just get it right, we'll have the victorious Christian life. Remember that song, When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Brothers and sisters, at the center of the Christian faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said to us, if any man would come after him, me, let him deny himself and take his cross and follow me. For if a man will save his life, he will lose it. But if a man will lose his life for my sake, he will find it. And so what this means is, if any man would come after Christ, let him take up his cross and follow him. You say, oh, but the whole world says that's wrong. I say, so who are you going to choose, Jesus Christ or all the charlatans? You say, yeah, but they quote Jesus when they tell me that he's wrong. I say, of course, they're religious. You say, yeah, but... I mean, there are so many on that side, and there are so few and far between on this side. And the whole world goes after men whose pride is their necklace and his eyes are fat. And they drink from their cup. And I say, so who are you going to trust? Who do you love? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love the Apostle Paul? Now there's where you can tell who you are. If you find yourself loving the Apostle Paul as he points to the crucified Lord, 
And if you love the crucified Lord because you know that Jesus has what you need, because you know your condition is absolutely hopeless, then guess what? You're weak. And as you look to Jesus, you are yourself boasting in your weakness. As you come to the Lord's table and you drink from the cup of Christ's blood, is that strength? It's weakness. As you listen to the word preached by somebody who's pretty disgusting and, and, and humiliate yourself by sitting under a rant from him for 45 minutes, it's weak. As you read a book, words printed on a page with ink, and tell people that you believe it's the very Word of God, and they say to you, oh, come on, we know what words are today. Words are, are, are vehicles for meaning, and, and you can't look at a word and think you have its meaning. You say, Jesus said, Scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus says, is it not written? You see, everything about this faith that you and I hold to has at the center the cross of Jesus Christ. And if he loves you, he will give you a thorn. And he will give it to you so that you are proud. Because he hates pride. He hates it. And that's all Americans know. Everything about our nation is aimed at perfecting our pride. And the Bible tells us that God hates pride. And so if you're going to be truly religious, truly religious, you start by hearing the diagnosis of God that there is no hope for you because you're a sinner and because God's holy and the chasm between you and Him will never be breached. And so you start with your face in the dust realizing, woe is me, for I am a sinful man, and I have seen the living God. And then he says, on the other hand, my son is righteous, and he has given his blood for wicked women and men like you. And if you'll bring yourself under his skirts, under his robes of righteousness, I will declare you not guilty. And you go, you know something? I'm not that bad off. I don't want to identify with any man. I don't need to. And he says, depart from me, you wicked. There is no hope for you. Why? Because you won't glory in your weakness. You won't boast in your need. But those who will glory in their weakness and boast in their need, they walk over to Christ and they say, O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon me. And he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. (laughs) And so right away, you put your faith in Jesus and he says, You put your faith in me because I chose you. You go, oh, now, wait a second. You know, there has to be a little bit of me in this. I mean, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have need. But, I mean, I chose you. And he says, okay, fine. You want to go back to the drawing board? We'll go back to the drawing board. Does the pot say to the potter, how dare you make me for a profane use? And you go, you know something? 
I am having second thoughts about this whole enterprise. I'm going to find a religion that says more about me and a little less about you because there has to be something of me in this. And then maybe you have the faith and you say, all right, you chose me. I didn't choose you. Thank you. And then you walk down the line and he says, now you're a woman, and that means that you will submit to your husband. And you go, no, wait a second. I've already made it across this hurdle of you choosing me and me not choosing you. But now you're telling me that just because I was born a woman that I have to be subordinate to my husband? I mean, it's the modern world we live in, you know. Give me a little time. I'm going to think. I'm going to count the cost. I've got to go back and bury my father, you know. I haven't quite put my hand to the plow, you know. So maybe, maybe, just maybe... You go to Him for forgiveness of your sins. You go under His blood. And maybe, just maybe, you say, you chose me. And maybe, just maybe, you say, all right, I will submit to my husband. And then He says, be fruitful and multiply. And He goes, see, I knew it was going to come back to children with Him. You know, I knew He was going to go back to children. I say, what do you think is the school of sanctification in a man and a woman's life? Now, let's see. We have two choices of how we'll be sanctified. On the one hand, we have having to punch the clock every day and do a mindless task. On the other hand, we have going home and being greeted by a loudmouth baby who's going to throw up on your shoulder. And then in the middle of the night, it's going to start crying. And then sometime it's going to have a fever so high you think they may die. And you plead with God to give you your child's life. Now, which do you think would help you be sanctified? On the one hand, punching the clock and doing a mindless task. On the other hand, changing a dirty diaper. Come on, people. God has made us the way we are. And you can't say, I choose Jesus Christ, but after that, I will glory in my pride. I will glory in having no need of a woman coming home to her, asking me to talk to her. I will not take a wife. I will not take children. I will not be a member of a church. I will not sit under, sit, sit under a preacher. I will not ever cry in church. I will never die in my children's home. I will never be a burden to my children. I, I... I'm proud. And you've got to cut me a little slack. Because my whole life can't be a life of repentance. My whole life can't be a life of need. I can't be taking up my cross every day. I mean, how dare God make me someone who wants to have sex with other men? Every day of my life I want to have sex with somebody other than a woman. How dare God make me that way? And so what happens? Everybody says, this is God's new way of doing things, and there's nothing wrong with it, and then you don't have to repent every day. I mean, look, if that's the solution, I don't know what I've been worried about all my life about my eyes. (laughs) And if you don't know what I'm talking about, find somebody afterwards who will tell you. It's a lot easier to not serve a holy God. It's a lot easier to serve American pride. It's a lot easier to operate from our strength. David, stand up, please. Look at his shoulders. Turn around. And look at his face. And he doesn't spend time at the weight machine. He doesn't have a membership in the Y. This is how he naturally is. 
And so what does God do with David Abbasar? He's a pretty good pool player. And he can hold his own in a, in a barroom fight. So what does God do with David? God puts him in a church where he needs to learn large words or nobody will respect him. In other words, God takes the very opposite place of David's natural strengths and says, there is where you're going to serve. God calls him into pastoral ministry, and David hasn't even been to college. Do you understand? In other words, everything David has naturally is a strength. God says, no, I'm not going to use that. You're going to move to Bloomington to a, to a community of disembodied brains, right? And nobody's going to give a rip about your buff body, right? And then you're going to have to start studying Greek, and you're going to have to take, you know, the post out of your tongue, and you're going to have to, or out of your eyebrow, nose. Oh, you still have it. I didn't know you still had it. Right on, dude. <laughs> but you had a lot more you've taken out. And you're going to stop bleaching your hair and you're going to begin to learn humility. And then you're going to shepherd God's flock. And it's going to be mostly words you use, not much of your body. And David begins to boast in his weakness. He gets up in front of us and he tells us, remember last week, those of you who were here, about how after he was introduced to the Lord, he then had a sexual relationship with a woman. And who do we glory in? We glory in David. We boast about David. But it's not about David. It's about the mercy and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And therefore, I'm well content. This is the mop-up operation. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Have you noticed that the men that go into leadership out of this church, almost all of them have been servants of Bob's in Bob's house? You know what I call Bob's house in this church when I talk to people that aren't in this church? I call it the finishing school for our men. Do you realize the wealth in this church because of Bob Kapowitz? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought of the character investment he has made in man after man after man at by allowing them what? Well, it is true. They get to go sometimes to Europe, and they do sometimes get to meet famous opera singers. So is that where the treasure of Bob Kapowitz is? No, it's not. The treasure of Bob Kapowitz is that they take him to the bathroom. And as he is weak... Jesus Christ is glorified. Because these men learn to be humble. They learn that it's about Jesus. They learn that the only thing good in their character comes because the Holy Spirit gives that to them. And then they go out becoming husbands, becoming fathers, becoming pastors, having taken Bob to the bathroom. And
And it's not about them. It's about Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Isn't this beautiful? Thank you, Terry. Terry taught me this this week. Terry Ann Wagner. I was in two situations this week where I had nothing to bring. Nothing. And it was a mess. And I'm saying a real mess. And so what I did was I just pleaded with people. I didn't have logical arguments. I didn't quote much scripture. I just pleaded with them. And then I cried and then I pleaded some more. For many hours, two situations where there were nasty things going on in families. So I was talking to Terry about this. And she very quietly said, God is pleased to work in our weakness. Yeah, right, women don't teach. Women teach. And so I began to think about that, and I began to realize that I'd always rather go to somebody and give them the thought that I've come up with that's clearly right. I don't want to have to be pleading with them. I don't want to have to be crying with them. And I I don't want to be dependent on the Holy Spirit, and I really don't want to have to embrace the cross. So that's the end. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you? You can't love Jesus and resist humiliation and weakness. You can't. And this is going to mean a different thing for every single one of you. Some of you, it will mean that you allow your children to take you to the bathroom when you get old. Some of you, it will mean that you allow God to have you be single in a church filled with families and children and not to be bitter and not to demand an extra amount of attention for yourself. Some of you, it will mean that you will go home after talking all day at work and you will talk at home to your wife. It means for Bob that he will continue to be in a wheelchair dependent on men to care for him. Does that glorify Jesus Christ? Unbelievably. Some of you, it will mean that you will tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow struggle with your besetting sin. But you'll know that Jesus Christ has paid the price for that sin and that one day in heaven, it will be gone. So that's the program. That's this church. There are lots of churches. It has a different program. You can go there. But that's our program. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And so we're a cross-bearing people. And we don't do it saying, poor, poor, pitiful me, poor, poor, pitiful me. We say, it's my glory. (laughs) Like Paul, I'll boast in my weakness. All right, let's pray.